Welcome to the Canteen Podcast, a show for anyone who has feelings about food. Join host Ali Houston as guests open up about their relationship with food and their thoughts on nutrition. Nourish yourself with the Canteen Podcast. Hey everyone, welcome to this episode of the Canteen Podcast. I'm your host, Ali Houston. We have a special episode today. My guests are Professor Ken Strain and Tucker Goodrich. When I asked Ken to do this episode, he said, if I can say don't eat vegetable oils in a hundred different ways, I'll be happy. That's the message here. Anything that has a high level of a particular type of polyunsaturated fat is probably highly damaging to your health. So listen up for details. I hope you enjoy. Please don't forget to jump over to iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts and hit the subscribe button. And please don't forget to leave a five-star rating and review to get the podcast in front of more eyes. This podcast is made possible thanks to paleocanteen.co.uk, which is my company. Paleocanteen.co.uk is the UK's one-stop paleo and low-carb food provider, where you can get restaurant-quality meals, grass-fed Scottish beef and lamb, outdoor bread pork, and a selection of paleo and low-carb products delivered chilled to your door. That's paleocanteen.co.uk. Thanks, and enjoy the show. And we are recording. And this episode is going to be a geek out. It's going to be great. Um, top line headline is it's about mitochondria and seed oils. Um, mitochondria are the little power plants inside our cells. We all have trillions of them. And their combined energy in one person is about the same as a lightning bolt. But there are a lot of modern diseases that are caused by these little power stations malfunctioning and slowing down. How does that happen and how can we stop it? And to answer that, we have two friends of the show, Ken Strain, who is an experimental professor of physics, and Tucker Goodrich, who is a Wall Street, Wall Street risk specialist and tech guru. Welcome. Thank you very much for having me. Likewise, Ali, thank you. And Ken, it's an honor to finally make your acquaintance somewhat in person. I'd absolutely, I would say the same to you, Tucker. It's, it's great to see you face-to-face, almost. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Brilliant. So, Tucker, um, you used to have some dreadful health problems, including autoimmune issues, allergies, stroke-like symptoms, diverticulitis. And Ken, you were plagued by chronic fatigue syndrome ME, you were unable to work in your early 40s and you were facing an end to your career. Um, and since you were both left short by attempts from your doctors to heal you, you both scoured the medical literature and read whatever you could and both independently chose very similar paths, cutting right down on carbohydrates and vegetable oils, also known as seed oils, and completely turned your health around. And um, both of you have appeared on the podcast before. At this point, Tucker's episode hasn't gone out yet, but it will have by the time this goes out. And the sort of sub-headline is that for you guys, your health problems went away, which is amazing. And since then, you've spent the intervening years researching in depth the health benefits and mechanisms of cutting carbs and seed oils, particularly out of the diet. And to kick off, I want to convey how hard it is to convince either of you of anything. Um, <laughs> Ken, can you outline what you do 
and the, and the levels of precision and sureness that are required in your job and how that reflects on your discoveries in nutrition and your own health. Then maybe Tucker can do the same. Okay. okay. Um, so I'm, uh, my day job is trying to detect, uh, or indeed succeeding at detecting uh, gravitational waves which travel across the universe at the speed of light. Um, Congratulations on that, by the way. Oh, thank you. Um, and, uh, you know, I started, I did my PhD starting in the mid 80s and I knew we would succeed. And I didn't think it would be as early as 2015, 2016. I thought we would be still at it by now. Um, and we, we look for the, the tiniest vibrations uh, when they reach the apparatus. There are absolutely mind-bogglingly tiny changes that we detect on these huge um, experiments that we have on Earth. Um, but we've done it. The, now, if you've got the right iPhone app, you can get about once a week, you can hear... Uh, a ping on your iPhone when 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 our detectors uh, um, are triggered by uh, usually two black holes um, colliding um, several uh, billions of light years away, typically, and we're seeing those events about once a week at the moment. Um, now, I I I think I like physics, experimental physics, because it's a wide range of challenges, but all the problems are finite. It's not like um, biology, which just seems to go on and on forever, deeper and deeper layers. Um, and so uh, that's certainly the, the, the biggest challenge I had in trying to read about nutrition that you, you read about, um, you start reading about, uh, you know, one aspect of biochemistry in a cell and immediately you've got 15 other things to, 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 to read up on, 15 other papers. And then each of those 15 papers has another 15. And before the end of the day, you're tearing your hair out, trying to figure out what the, what the patterns are here. Whereas in physics, it's, it's much more linear, much more direct. And then um, just, just to interject one observation, and then you discover that the original paper you started out with is wrong. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 and as I mentioned in the last podcast, depressingly often deliberately wrong or deliberately misleading because people have gone out to prove something and uh, whether, whatever they find, they don't, they don't, they don't uh, disprove their hypothesis. They just uh, search for enough evidence to get some however weak support for it. And, you know, we keep coming across these uh, um, I items like... Uh, you know, uh, whether uh, cells are grown in high glucose uh, containing solutions or whether they're in physiological glucose solutions. And, you know, you could basically tweak the experiment to get any results that you're in mind of getting. And physics doesn't really work like that, where, where you know, we think the universe is already a pretty hard place to understand and we try and make it as simple as possible and pare back all the complexity. And that, I don't know whether it's even possible in biology, but, you know, it's certainly... It's not made easy by the way people attack the problems. Yeah, and what about you, Tucker? Um, what um, you know, what's your line of work like in terms of um, understanding the world around you, and how does it kind of relate to you know how does your approach to problem solving relate to how you solved your health issues? Well, in some respects, it's probably a little closer to medicine than what Ken just described. Um, Wall Street, enough said, people are trying to bullshit you and con you every day. And so your basic assumption is that you can't believe anything you read. Um, and then add that, add into that the technology aspect of it. And you're often, you know, if you're managing a complex system as I was, um, you know, just take the advantage of 
Microsoft Windows, which we used as the basics for most of our systems. It has millions of lines of code that you don't have access to, right? So it's very similar, although probably several orders of magnitude simpler than a biological system. Um, you can't, practically speaking, if you're trying to solve a problem and you have a clock running, you can't start out with, okay, let's read the Microsoft Windows code and figure out where the problem is, right? You're mostly doing black box analysis where you're trying to change the inputs to the system and see how that changes the outputs. And so typically whenever you have a problem, your first question is going to be, did the inputs change, right? Because that is most often where your problems find. So you've got a, for instance, um, You've got a data feed coming in from some counterparty out on the out on Wall Street, and they change a format, and that causes your you know maybe they move a decimal point, change precision, and you find out that somebody on your side coded for a certain amount of precision, and boom, that causes a break, right? So that's typically what happens. Second order of problems that you find is because all of these systems have a changing code base. Um, just imagine if God was sending down updates to your DNA as he found problems in them, right? So that's sort of your second likelihood, right? Did something change? Did something in the code base change that we're not aware of? Um, so the problem solving skills that that promoted, I think, are very similar to what I've used in reading the medical research, right? Assuming, um, assuming that what you're reading isn't necessarily so. So that means whenever some, whenever somebody makes a claim and provides a reference, go read the reference because often enough they're misrepresenting it. Um, and then, you know, uh, Ken, Ken, well, Ken, Ken, this is a question for Ken in a way. I mean, and then understanding that a lot of how um, the statistics, I mean, I'm not a statistician by any strength of the imagination, but I lived in that world for, you know, a couple of decades. And what I realized is that, you know, in, in medical science, they're basically misrepresenting how statistics ought to be used, yeah. right? Yeah. And the perfect example of that is the famous p-value, which is a prob which stands for a probability value. And in medicine, the p-value is typically, uh, what is it, Ken, 0.05 that's yeah. used? Yeah. What, just out of curiosity, Ken, because I've heard this before, but I'd like to hear it from the horse's mouth, as it were. What's the p-value that's used in your experiments? So in, in our first announcement, it was, uh, well, it was, it was actually uncalculable <laughs> because the, the signal, our first signal was so strong that we couldn't actually evaluate the, uh, the p-value in the result um, because it was such an outlier that the statistics you know, wasn't, wasn't sensible. We're, we're, but we, we're, we're talking about, um, um, so let me do a quick mental calculation about point four zeros one roughly for, for, a, for a big new groundbreaking result that would be in particle physics or in, or in, um, in, in, the, in the announcement of a new field like gravitational waves, you, you know, you want to be that certain. But I think, I think the point is about p-value uh, that, that's a problem in medicine is it's, it's more the, um, you know, the, 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 uh, the p-hacking that's the problem. I think right. if they stuck to the p-value uh, and treated it absolutely seriously, then that might be okay. Um, 
especially in the context of drug development, where you're never going to get very strong effects because drugs only help a fraction of the people you give them to, right? And that's the best you can do, but you've got to trial, trial them on the whole population, and um, especially modern drugs. Um, and um, and if, if you were doing that and you do one trial, and you decide that you've got success or failure if if you get your 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 p of of 0.05 or you don't then that's probably fair of itself but where it really goes wrong is if you don't define the question before you start the experiment and you allow yourself to peek at the data before deciding right. what analysis to do because then basically anything you know you can, you can you can prove anything you could you could look for statistical fluctuations in your results and me medical results are always very noisy and so you've always got the case you could say ah well it wasn't uh, you know it wasn't the number of cardiac stents that were required it was the number of uh, mi events or something that you were actually trying to measure and you get one of those is over a p of 0 0.05 and that's the that's the paper you publish and i i know for example from peter gooch's book uh, deadly medicines that that that's actually endemic and and of course uh, John Ioannidis in Stanford has you know published papers and, and books um, explaining uh, that when you analyze when you statistically analyze the results of whole fields of, of medical science the significance of the results is 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 is, is zero it's essentially they're meaningless in some fields it depends on the field and it depends how much p-hacking goes on um, well, Right, but for instance, they've looked at the frequency of quote-unquote significant p-values, and they find that the papers all group right around significance. Yeah, which that's right. One of the things I've done in my career was trying to detect financial fraud, and there are certain things that are immediate indications of malfeasance, yeah. and all of your numbers, you know, the distribution should be somewhat random, right? Um, mm -hmm. With a you know, arguably strict cut out, cut off around P05 since they don't like to publish non-significant papers. Mm -hmm. But if you see a big bulge right around that number, that mm -hmm. suggests that people are working to get to that number rather yeah. than just, you know, finding results. That's right. And of course, if you get a P05 and someone, you know, amazingly replicates your experiment, there's a 50-50 chance they'll get either side of P0.5 as well. Right, 0 0.05 as well, <laughs> because you know it's the same. If it if it genuinely repeats the experiment, it's just increasing the population of the statistical results, and so you you take the same sample, and so you you know the chances are you'll be just above or just below the right. same cutoff value, and so you know one case you would say it's a failure, the other case you'd say it's a success, but it it's just the wrong way to think about it. I mean, even in our field, uh, a, a while ago we decided that uh, these frequentist statistics were just fundamentally the wrong approach and that we now take an almost entirely Bayesian approach where you you look you 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 use you evaluate in some mathematical form what your current state of knowledge is then you add the evidence that you obtain from your experiment and you ask the question what's the change in the state of knowledge that you've achieved from your experiment and that might be something that you thought was unlikely has become more likely or whatever but it allows a much more reasonable way than just this very artificial um publication bias amplified effect of p-value spreading out around 0 0.05 right right and that's so you know i just basically had to through trial and error and practice you know when when i started this out i explained to a fellow i was working with i said look 
all we're really doing here is applied scientific method. method. I mean, that's all engineering mm -hmm. is at the end of the day. It's just try and narrow down your variables and then play with your variables. Um, it's not, it shouldn't be too complicated. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, like a lot of these things, if you look at, if you understand it on a fairly fundamental level, it's pretty simple, but yeah. all that adds the complication is just levels, right? And when you get into biology, which is, you know, as Ken said, seems to be fractal at sometimes, um, <laughs> you know, it can be, it can be tr tough trying to understand enough to try and get back down to um, the simplicity of a signal and mm -hmm. understanding where the signal's coming from and why that signal is having some impact on your health, which is, I hope, what we can get to in this discussion yeah. about what I think is a pretty important signal. So I think maybe just to, to, to cut through the complexity a bit, because I think if you go back to your first order, your point about the first order considerations, that there is actually a huge amount, and I think this leads pretty directly to some of your very first observations with regards to vegetable oils, that or seed oils, it has to be environmental. The problems that we're all encountering now, there's no doubt. I mean, people who are not honest will tell you that there's more cancer because we live longer. And then you'll see a two-year-old getting cancer, you know, and that's not because that person li was living longer. Um, there, there has been an enormous change in the environment. It's not in the genes. Um, it's not in the first place epigenetic. So it's not in the genetic reaction to, to the environment. But in the very first place, there's a huge change in the environment. And we know that it's in the last hundred years or so. And, you know, that immediately narrows down the number of candidates that, you know, are, are, are uh, substances of concern. Now, it could be, you know, an air pollutant. Um, but, right. then, but then that would fail the test of universality over the world. And, and now we're seeing populations all over the world suffering exactly the same or very similar health problems, you know, diabetes and uh, various types of cancer and so on. And maybe there is some, some, some additional environmental effect that's local, but, but overall is there are these very powerful global effects. And more, and you know, just to add a little color onto that, I agree 100%. If you look at cardiovascular disease, um, it's often claimed that LDL causes cardiovascular disease. Well, if you say that, what you're saying is that cardiovascular disease is a genetic disease, right? Because LDL is, you know, we have LDL because it's in our genetic code. Mm -hmm. um, but if you start reading the medical history, and by, uh, you know, my background in um, school was a his history student, if you start reading the medical history, you come very quickly to the fact that cardiovascular disease is a new disease. Even in America and England, yep. in the early part of the 20th century, it was much less common than it was by the, even the middle of the 20th century. Mm -hmm. So that immediately rules out genetics as a cause. In the yep. 60s, there was a study looking at three different populations, the Koreans, the Japanese, and Africans, and comparing them in their, in their native environment to uh, the people who had immigrated to the United States and finding that, you know, in the case of the Africans, they had a zero rate of cardiovascular disease in Africa. And in America, they were higher than the, you know, more uh, distant immigrants, my ancestors, the white Americans. So, you know, you spend a couple of minutes, a couple, couple of minutes, a couple of hours looking through the medical history and you quickly realize that that's just, it's not a viable cause of the disease right yeah. and you know just just the paper the paper um 
looking at heart disease in the Japanese, Koreans, and Africans immediately said, we're ruling out genetics as a cause. It has to be environmental. So it's not only looking at it first principles, that's what the medical literature has found the case to be, right? Yeah. Maybe this is a good point to interject and say that uh, the diseases that we're talking about in this podcast are, uh, you know, range from Alzheimer's to cancer to um, um, liver disease, lung disease, heart disease, or general cardiovascular disease, heart failure, myocardial infarction. In fact, it's really, really hard to exclude um, any disease. Um, okay, there are some Non, Quite well, rare we, genetic. We can, we can exclude non-infectious. We can say non-infectious diseases. Well, I, I wouldn't. I was going to say that, but I wouldn't even go that far because I, I'm pretty sure our reaction, uh, our, our susceptibility to viruses, um, depends on our body's state of inflammation. And um, we'll get to inflammation at some point. So I, I, I mean, I reckon I used to have colds yeah, or, or flus. I used to have them ten times a year, maybe, and I've had three very mild in the last decade. Yeah, I you know? had a similar experience. I used to get the yeah. flu every year, like clockwork. Yeah, and me too. I haven't had a serious flu in five years since I fixed my diet. Yeah, yeah. and so, yeah. you know, to just sort of recap what we've gone over so far, I think each of you has extensive experience in looking at complicated systems and somehow trying to um, work out what's wrong with them and sometimes simplify them. And dare I say work out what the largest influences are, the dominant forces are. And I think that's one of the most important things when you're looking at uh, a variable, imperfectly examined, complicated systems like the human body or human population studies, because you really have to just separate the wheat from the chaff. No pun intended, because wheat is going to come up as well, I would have thought. But yeah. <laughs> you, know, you have to decide what's causing 80% of the effects here. Yeah. And... Yeah. Um, I think, well, when I asked Ken to do this episode, he said that he'd be happy if he could tell everyone in a hundred different ways not to eat seed oils. And I think most people don't realize the extent of seed oils in the modern diet. So maybe can we talk a bit about where they're commonly found and how ubiquitous they are, Tucker? Yeah. Um, so... First, a little point of clarification. Seed oils became a part of the uh, human diet back in the late 1800s um, when primarily in the United States, uh, they figured out a way to detoxify cottonseed oil, which up until that point had been a waste product of the cotton industry. Um, they were then able to feed it to, uh, they had been feeding it to animals, but then they could start feeding it to humans. Um, shortly after that happened, they discovered that about 20% um, to 30% of the quote unquote lard sold in the United States was in fact cotton, cut with cottonseed oil because it was far cheaper. You know, it was waste product and all of a sudden, hey, we can sell it to people as lard, which was in quite in demand um, and was one of the primary cooking fats used. Um, it was really interesting the story about how they, they found out people were doing that. Yeah, so there was a company that I think it was Armor, uh, the Armor Lard Company had managed to corner the lard market and 
when they started trying to figure out where their lard was coming from, they realized that the production capability of lard in the United States was about uh, three, four fifths of the lard that was actually available in the United States. Um, so shortly thereafter, there were various um, congressional hearings and laws passed about selling adulterated lard and, you know, I think uh, what they said was that you could sell it as compound lard was the phrase that they used. The Canadians shortly after did an investigation where they discovered that I think every brand of lard imported into Canada from America was in fact adulterated lard. So it fairly became a major part of the um, food supply. Um, the, you know, with, Crisco, Crisco was introduced in 1911, um, and all of a sudden we have, they go from fraud to this major marketing effort um, by claiming that because it was a vegetable fat, it was more, quote unquote, pure than a animal fat. Um, you know, Procter & Gamble put an enormous effort into it. They figured they had a much bigger market if they could feed this stuff to people than sell it to them as soap and candles, uh, which is probably a fine use for uh, for seed oils. Um, just a quick note, I use the term um, seed oils rather than vegetable oils because uh, olive oil and avocado oil are also, and palm oil are all vegetable oils, but they're not made from the seed, they're made from the fruit, and they seem to be a much healthier alternative. So I'm trying to focus it down on the actual problem. The only exception to that is coconut oil, which is, because it's tropical, mm -hmm has very little um, polyunsaturated fat in it. We'll get to that later, but is in fact a seed. So coconut oil is the one, as Ken will tell you from physics, every rule seems to have some annoying exception. And in this case, coconut is the exception to seed oils are not good for you. Yeah, so, and I want to just drag back a little bit to translate for people who might not have heard of uh, p-hacking or the p-value before. And I guess that comes from when I was asking you both about how sure you want to be about something before you believe it. And it's really just a value that um, you can assign to a number that you've reached um, in a statistical way to tell you how sure you are that that number is correct. And you were asking Ken about how sure you have to be before you make an announcement in physics. And typically it's 10, 100, 1,000 times more sure than um, than the typical result in nutrition science might be. And that's not just because physicists are, you know, far superior scientists or whatever, but it's really partly- Although they probably are. <laughs> it's, it's, it's probably often in large part because you can control a physics experiment really well and methods to uh, detect what's going on in the human body or in population studies, you just, do not have control. It's impossible. So, to be fair, to be fair to some to to nutrition researchers, it is harder to come up with a clean result. But also, to given their dues in the other way, they do this p hacking where they, um, like Ken said, instead of saying, "I have this hypothesis about what's happening, let's test it." Okay, how sure are we of that? There's the p value. They actually get a set of data for. That, that could fit various different hypotheses. And then they see with that particular data that they've taken, what um, p-value comes out to show a sense of sureness, even if 
that's a false sense and they just they just go with that i i think ali just to make sure i'm not uh being unfair on 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 the biological sciences i've actually having having read something over 2000 uh, papers in the last decade on on biological area. It's actually it's not it's not about biology and overall. Um, it's only really about nutrition where the where the quality gets very very low. Um, I can think of people on more towards biochemistry where like a, a, a Spitella, for example, who worked out the the chemistry of some of the things we're going to be talking about later on, and the papers are beautiful. The work is of the very highest standard. Um, there, there's a couple of results which I've seen, but I keep reading the or keep reading the paper. Another one that we'll almost certainly come back to is an experiment done on on lab mice um, to analyse some of the tinier chemicals in the mitochondria of the lab mice brain, and you know to do that with the the detail and precision with which it was done. You know, I don't have any doubts that that is mind-bogglingly complicated and wonderful science carried out. Um, with extreme care, um, and there there are dozens of examples um, like 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 that. Um, more in the the biochemistry and and mitochondrial and energetics um, area, where the experiments are vastly complicated compared to most physics experiments. Certainly, in terms of being able to control them, and yet the results I think there are completely solid. And so, right from the beginning. My, my thought press processes were very like uh, what, what Tucker said a moment ago, that within the first few hours of reading, and certainly within the first week of even thinking about this, I'd narrowed down my areas of concern to um, seed oils and sugar. And it took me five years, <laughs> with a great deal of help from Tucker and others, to actually get a complete closed picture on that, where I can actually understand all the observations that you that you read about reasonably well um you know it's not it's not simple mm. um to sort out the you know sugar we all know can be harmful in some circumstances we are claiming that seed oils can be harmful in many circumstances together is the very worst um but you know it, it, it's hard to think that way at first i was thinking well is the problem seed oils or is the problem sugar and that was the wrong way of thinking um but it, but it took me five years to sort that out um but for me, one of the real keys that really made it absolutely plain that it had to be environmental and that it had almost certainly to be food was it was actually two NIH videos, uh, two days of NIH videos, a conference that was run by the U.S. Army. I think the, 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 the general surgeon of the U.S., the surgeon general of the U.S. Army and a few others had invited um, experts from all over the world on omega-3 and omega-6 oils, different types of polyunsaturated seed oils. And um, they spent two days explaining, first of all, that the least healthy population of young adult males mainly um, was the US Army. And that by the end of the conference, they were convinced that it was almost, uh, dom the dominant problem was something involving polyunsaturated oils in their diet whether that was in you know Afghanistan or in some other place and I, I that's I was I was very ill when I when I watched that video and I kind of had this abstract bizarre half memory of doing it but I, I, I checked I looked back just a few weeks ago they're still there in the 10 years there's been a, I think less than a fewer than a thousand people have have looked at these things 
which is I downloaded them, which is just was amazing. that the one where Bill Bill Lance spoke, if I remember correctly? That is absolutely right. And I right. think probably Bill Lance saved my life in that in that respect because I think that was uh, somehow it sunk in as just being plainly and simply and directly presented without uh, unnecessary detail, and just the message was absolutely clear. And the fact that it that, that it convinced the rather uh, natural sceptics of of army generals, you know, that they they were actually directly causing harm to their population of soldiers, uh, struck me very profoundly. Um, Although I so, don't think they've still done anything about it. I think they they said in the the closeout that they weren't allowed to by law. Um, they're yes. not allowed to regulate the food or supplements. They, they, there were complexities about that. Um, because, yes, because by law they have to follow the uh, the food pyramid. Yeah. So um, so that 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 struck me very profoundly. I also, sorry, I also heard that um, that uh, a lot of the the food contracting goes out to well known um, fast food uh, brands. Um, you know that. If you're if you're out in uh, the Middle East fighting, then you might be getting fed by McDonald's or something, and yeah. the, obviously there's a lot of seed oils travel with their food for the fries and um, in some of the other foods. Salad dressings and yep, yep, mm-hmm. um, yeah. Lands at the end of that uh, conference, he was paraphrasing a soldier who'd asked him a question. He said. The limited omega three and the excessive omega six has screwed the military. Yeah. So that was the leading scientist, and he is a leading scientist in this field. Summation of the situation. Yeah. And I reckon the same had applied to me, and so I better fix it. And it yes. took me a while to figure out. Um, it, it, fixing it also involved doing some things like fasting and 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 you know other adjustments to sort of recover from years or decades of damage but you know the basic principle was that uh, um, um, that that message uh, made an absolutely profound difference to to my future and for the last decade uh, certainly so um, and so I think that 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 sort of combination of things made it absolutely clear to me that we weren't talking about anything other than than uh, foods which we can call toxins by their effect um, or food ingredients. Um, And related to that, one of the things that I also found is very profound in understanding is that we don't have any natural defense against the presence of polyunsaturated oils in our food. It's not, if we have rancid fish oil in our food, we probably don't eat it so much. But if we have, we can smell it, and it and it's most people find it disgusting in most circumstances, and we don't eat it. If we have rancid um, omega six uh, seed oils in our food, well, actually, many people find the taste of those attractive rather than repulsive. And so, you know, if if you fry a donut, that's one of the flavor elements that you're getting. You're getting rancid, um, peroxidized, being the chemical term. seed oils in, in, in their polyunsaturated seed oils. And that, I think, is one of the biggest recurring themes in evaluating some of the more complicated science. Why do certain observations about mitochondria and, and the polyunsaturated um, 
fatty acids that you get in mitochondria. Why does our body allow these to occur? Where in our body do we see the problems? Do we see them in the brain? Do we see them in the heart? And how much uh, are the, the tissues in those areas protected from the diet? So the brain is well protected from the diet, for example. So you get quite different evidence by looking at uh, the, the chemicals in the brain compared to in the heart, which is not at all uh, protected from well, even, the effects of the diet. Well, we, we may be diet. forward about an hour and a half in this conversation. Yeah. Well, I'm just, I'm just, I was just kind of setting it up from the point yeah. of view that, that um, it struck me very early on that this must be a completely new ingredient in the diet. It can't be something that we, you know, evolution is fantastic at giving you every protection from any harm that you could possibly need you know, provided that harm has existed for, you know, some substantial amount of the recent past. And this has to be something completely new. Right. That's causing the problem. Yeah. Right. And we, um, what, Ken and I knew each other in person and then we all met reading a, a blog called Hyperlipid, which takes, um, for one of its major threads called Protons, it takes as inspiration an amazing book by the biologist Nick Lane called The Vital Question. And in The Vital Question, Nick Lane lays out the likely origin of life on Earth, something that seems to have happened once on Earth. Uh, it goes through the mechanics of how it happened in uh, underwater sea vents where there's this gradient of temperature and how that should affect how we think about how we get energy now in our mit mitochondria several billion years later. So starting from there, why do we care so much about mitochondria? Either of you, I guess. Well, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll give that a go. So, you know, I, I, I think learning about mitochondria has been one of the greatest pleasures in, in not always a very pleasurable experience of, of having to try to understand, um, you know, all these health problems and reading some from time to time, some quite gruesome papers carried out on lab animals or whatever. Uh, but reading, reading Nick Lane's books, and actually I would say that um, to get the whole picture from Nick Lane, you read the whole series of books, starting with Oxygen, Power, Sex and Suicide, about mitochondria entirely, and then The Vital Question, which goes more into the origins. And I think for the topics that, we, that we're talking about here, actually the material in Power, Sex and Suicide is the most important one. But also uh, Nick Lane's own website has got all his academic uh, papers and many of them are remarkably readable. He's really clearly written and the nice summaries. Yeah, it's, it's fantastic. So you can actually get right to the forefront of the research in evolutionary biology just by reading those and learning about mitochondria. And the thing that, that strikes me is his argument kind of goes something like, well, you know, bacteria and archaea, but mainly bacteria, were around on Earth for a long time, billions of years, and they haven't really changed. You know, they, they're all little microscopic things. I mean, okay, there's a few exceptions that are a bit bigger, a bit smaller, but they seem to be very strongly limited by something. And it turns out that they use, almost by definition, they use all the energy that they get from food to reproduce. They don't do anything else to first order. They don't even have extra genes that they might keep for emergencies. If, there's an anti if, there, if you're going to put an antibiotic to kill uh, bacteria, then most of the bacteria don't have the antibiotic resistance gene when you, when you first expose them, but one or two of them do, and they share it because they're not going to be spending all their energy duplicating just one extra gene. 
Now we have we have you know thousands, many thousands of genes and um, hundreds of thousands of genes, and um, we um, we um, we duplicate them, you know, when we need to, like all other multicellular life. So the question is, where do we get the energy required to do that, and all the other things that multicellular life does, um, like Have podcasts, podcasts, yeah, yeah, that sort of <laughs> that sort of thing. And the answer is mitochondria. And evolution very quickly, when mitochondria first appeared, and Nick Lane, uh, among many others, um, has a very powerful hypothesis that it was due to the merging of two bacterial-like um, uh, creatures way back. Um, you know, of order a billion years ago, and that one of them was absorbed into the other, and they exchanged uh, the one inside uh, produced uh, some chemicals that the uh, host would use, and the host kept the, the one inside alive. And it turns out this is an incredibly unlikely thing ever to happen for complicated reasons. Read the vital question, I, I won't summarize it here. It's an amazing story. And it's also echoed very largely on, 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 hyper, on the hyperlipid blog, which gives a slightly different take on it, but the same message. And basically, um, the, 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 the immediate consequences are that both of these creatures had roughly the same number of genes. You know, they maybe had 10,000 genes each or something like that. And uh, very quickly, the, the evolution pushed all the genes out of the one that became the mitochondria into the host, apart from a bare minimum required to do energy generation. And so the mitochondrion became uh, a very simplified genetically very simplified object that it's a, a subroutine in a larger program it's a subroutine and it's very cheaply reproduced so you, you you whereas you could only have one set of genes in your bacterium and reproducing that to call your energy now the host could host 10 100 several hundred mitochondria so our mitochondria have three of 13 protein coding genes you know which is a tiny fraction less than a thousandth of, of the rest of our genes, much less than a thousandth. And cells in our bodies can have typically hundreds or thousands even, depending on the cells of mitochondria. And if those mitochondria are not of the very highest quality, well, a process called autophagy uh, takes place where, that, where those particular weaker mitochondria are, are uh, dissolved effectively um, and uh, new ones uh, the ingredients are used, reused to make new ones. So the idea is a mitochondrion is a very cheap thing within a cell in the body uh, to, to, to have. And each one generates as much energy as, as one of those bacteria did in the first place. So now you've got hundreds or thousands of times the energy required just to, just to um, you know, keep the population going. And we've got all the spare energy left over for the hobbies and podcasts well assuming that they're working correctly we have all this extra energy which exactly. will get into exactly. your condition in a little bit yeah definitely um, yeah and so let's talk about so you've got these mitochondria which um had been uh some other um bacteria like thing that got you know subsumed into another another bacteria like thing it gave up a lot of its genes in exchange for free rent and uh, it now powers uh, all of our cells um, in a really efficient way. What, what about the structure of them? So we're zooming right in 
what do they really look like in, in the cells and what do the different parts do? Tucker, do you want to talk about that? Yeah, well, they look, I mean, good, you're making me go back to high school biology here. They look like little uh, ovals, sort of like a tick. They're sort of the shape of a tic-tac uh, with a bunch of squiggly lines inside, right? Sort of like a Pringle wrapped in a tic-tac. Um, and the business end is the Pringle, what are known as the cristae, right? That's where the food, your food, is broken down into its basic constituent elements, be it amino acids, uh, sugars, or fats, and then, you know, or fun things like ketone bodies, um, and then are fed into the mitochondria, and the mitochondria converts them into basically the major import, the major outputs of the mitochondria are ATP, which is used as energy throughout the cell, water, and carbon dioxide. So water and carbon dioxide are the waste products of this process. And ATP is the point of the whole process, right? A mitochondria exists in your body to produce ATP. Mm -hmm. And ATP is then used as energy by all the rest of the cells, all the rest of the parts of the cell, and all, almost all the cells in the body. I don't, I mean, there are a couple of cells in a human that don't have mitochondria, but you know, they're- Like a universal, uh, universally accepted, um uh type of energy isn't it atp so you you might eat things that have lots of you know sugar or glucose you might eat things that have lots of fat you might eat things that eat things a lot of a lot of amino acids but mitochondria convert it into atp that's right and it's it's neat there's actually a um there's a gif animation going around of part of the mitochondria and it literally is one molecule rotating in another molecule like a generator it looks exactly like a generator with little elements of ATP flying off of it, going out to the rest of the cell. So it's literally a um, universal power source in your body, right? And to give, you, to give you a quick idea of how important um, that they are, everybody knows what cyanide is and everybody knows that cyanide is a deadly poison. Cyanide is a deadly poison because it stops mitochondria from producing ATP. Right. That's why, that's how it kills you so quickly. It just, it's literally like flicking that, those millions and millions and millions of switches in your body. It just flicks them off and you're done. So I think one of the biggest discoveries in, you know, in, in the last 50 years in, in bio, or so in, bio, in biochemistry and in cell, in cell biology was the understanding that mitochondria, that, that that little motor, that rotating motor that you were talking about that assembles uh, ATP molecules uh, from, from, from the simpler ingredients, uh, that motor is driven by, well, not quite electricity, uh, because electricity is the flow of electrons, uh, but proticity, if you like to call it, the flow of protons. But it's kind of the same thing. It's a little battery-powered motor. And the, the battery is, um, is uh, in the mitochondrion, and the Christi that you mentioned um, have outside them, there's an area which is called the intermembrane zone or something like that. And then in the middle of the mitochondrion, there's this big, uh, pool of of liquid, and the 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 outer area is the plus terminal of the battery, and the inner terminal is the minus terminal of the battery. Um, and mitochondria work by taking the food ingredients, um, which come with 
very energetic electrons attached. And those electrons are strongly attracted to end up in oxygen molecules, uh, which we breathe in to, to burn the fuel um, in oxygen. And um, a, a, a marvelously complicated quantum mechanical chemical machine conducts the electrons mostly in pairs down what was called the electron transport chain for obvious reasons through this very complicated set of steps, um, you know, half a dozen little steps or so, well, even, even more than that if you look at the microscopic detail. And the electrons come off the, 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 the nutrient molecules, if you like, uh, in various ways, they get put into this electron transport chain, they lose their energy falling down a potential gradient towards uh, the chemical reaction with oxygen. And in that process, they pump lots of protons out from the middle of the mitochondria into the outside zone and charge up the battery. And then the battery runs down continuously by producing ATP. So it, it's a little nano machine. Um, much more efficient than any nanomachine that humans could uh, certainly currently dream of making. And evolution has honed it until it performs with almost perfect efficiency. There's, you know, there's very little waste heat in a mitochondria. If, if, if you get heat out of a mitochondria and it's because it's got surplus of energy and it deliberately wastes it, if it's running efficiently, it's an almost heat-free, thermodynamic efficient uh, machine, which is, you know, an am amazing that evolution has produced this over the time. But actually, the, the, a problem with that is that machine has to be built absolutely precisely to, to design. And this is one of the most utterly mind-boggling things that I, that I came across. Um, and that's that uh, this electron transport chain passes these electrons down. If you put electrons through a wire, you know, you lose electricity in terms of heat, the wire heats up, you lose power, that's inefficient. You pass electrons down an electron transport chain, there's almost zero waste. It's an almost perfect quantum mechanical micro machine or nano machine. And it does that by having atoms, and this links back to Nick Lane, atoms of iron and sulfur in little clusters in part that sort of are spaced a distance apart where the electrons can just spontaneously jump from one to the next. And in doing that, when they jump, they twist the shape of the, proton, the proteins that they're sitting in a little bit, and that's what pumps the protons out. Um, and it turns out that um, the, 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 these iron-sulfur clusters are typically about a nanometer apart, so a millionth, a thousandth of a millionth of a meter, which is a tiny distance. Um, but they're that distance apart. And if that distance is not maintained by through the evolutionary process, through genetics, if it's not maintained to within a few percent, then the mitochondria won't work at all. And this turns out, as people can read in Power, Sex and Suicide, this turns out to be the reason that sex exists as a, as a, as a thing, um, that mitochondrial genes don't undergo any sexual recombination process, whereas the rest of our genes in our body do. And that sets up this enormous problem of how, when we are evolving in the last sort of billion years, we've evolved quite a lot, but mitochondria have hardly changed. In terms of the genes, they've changed a little bit. In terms of their physical structure, they've changed almost not at all. If you look at mitochondria from a yeast or from a human, they're really hard to tell apart in terms of the basic chemistry that's going on inside. They're almost exactly identical. And 
that's been preserved. Um, and people may know that, um, that when we're having children, the mitochondria are essentially always in the egg. So female line places, places, uh, passes down the mitochondria, whereas the both female and male line pass down the rest of the genes, the overwhelming rest of the genes. And um, another quite astonishing story is the enormous battle that it takes to deliver a few hundred healthy mitochondria into a human egg cell. Um, the competition for the very, very best mitochondria that go into that cell, so that the progeny can be the very strongest progeny that can be produced, is just an absolutely uh, amazing process, which has again been described by, by Nick Lane. And it's really important to understand that we want our mitochondria to be the very best, to give us the most energy, the most potential, to keep our tissues living long and healthy. Uh, and weak mitochondria mean rapidly aging tissues. So um, if, 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 if I have poor mitochondria in my lungs, then I'm going to be very susceptible to lung disease. If I have poor mitochondria in my brain, then you know my brain will age faster than the rest of my body. And um, right. for that's, that's yeah. a great point to make in looking at uh, mitochondrial diseases, which are primarily genetic um, as they're understood by medicine right now. Um, you can have um, very different diseases that are caused by how a genetic defect is expressed in a body. So if you have one copies, you get one disease. If you have two copies, you get another disease, even though the defect is in the exact same gene, because so much of the body operates on this ragged edge of energy availability. And as soon as you step down below that key part, it's sort of like looking at voltage in a system, right? For a mechanical device to work properly, it generally has to have a given voltage. And as soon as you drop down below that voltage, the machine will start to malfunction. Even though it may not be, it won't be the obvious malfunction of it stops working, it may start to wear faster. Um, but you see very similar processes in the body when you start looking at you know, mitochondrial dysfunction, which is sort of the high level name for what we're discussing here. Yeah, maybe, maybe you could uh, you could just explain quickly, Ken, why um, it's why why uh, the fact that mitochondria are passed along the way they, they are, why that um, or why why mitochondria how mitochondria are the way they are, why that requires sex. Yeah, so so the problem is that to make this machine, you've got to use these thirteen little uh, mitochondrial. DNA genes, right? And they make some of the proteins in the mitochondria, but they, they don't make all of any of the proteins. They only make what's called subunits of the electron transport chain. Most of the rest comes from the external, the nuclear genes, the normal genes. And as I said, that machine has to be built with sub-nanometer precision, you know, way beyond any human engineering could possibly do. It'd be small compared to the smallest features in semiconductors, you know, today. Um, and the engineering has to be almost perfect. And the problem is that when, when uh, let's say you've got a genetic code for one of these proteins and there's a mutation, then it might not, the protein might still work, but it might be just a little bit different geometry than it was before because the extra, the different amino acids substituted in. And so the shape of the protein is just that little bit different. And in most genes in the body, for most mutations, it doesn't really matter 
you know, uh, as Tucker said, we've got two copies and one of the copies probably works well enough. And, you know, so I, I know I've had a 23andMe uh, DNA test, so I know that I've got several thousand uh, kind of awkward uh, genetic problems, but none of them cause any problem, real, real serious problems, because, you know, there are plenty of backup systems and, and so on. That's not the case in the mitochondria. The, the, the energy generation efficiency of the mitochondria has to be so close to perfect that if you make the slightest change, then it gets wrecked. And so basically sex, what sex does is in the battle for uh, human germ cells to develop into an egg, that the number of mitochondria are copied up to numbers of millions, and then all but the weak, all but the very strongest ones are destroyed, and those very strongest ones end up in egg cells, and those. Um, so they're selecting for the healthy mitochondria. In other yeah, words. exactly. And and even when it comes, so so a, a, a woman is born with her eggs already intact, already ready to you know, be in the ovaries and when the ovaries form and uh, be released. And it's not, I don't think it's quite known how it happens, but, you know, the strongest eggs are released first. They fight for the right to be uh, released um, first. So the strongest eggs with the strongest mitochondria, probably they produce, you know, most of a particular chemical or something like that, get released uh, first. Um, and the, even though in the very, the very healthiest human eggs, which might have, I can't remember the number, it's a few hundred up to a thousand mitochondria. And I, I think probably everyone has seen an, uh, videos or animations of um, the first few cell divisions after fertilization of a, of a human embryo, where what happens at first is um, you get a, an egg cell, which is relatively large, and it sort of divides in two, and you get two things that together make up the same volume as the egg cell did, and then it divides in two again, so you've got four. And there's no growth for a long time. You just get more and more and more cells in the same volume, uh, and you're up to 32 and 64, whatever. And the point is there's no new mitochondria there. Those are the mitochondria that an egg cell had. It's not, there's not been time to actually start growing mitochondria. And those cells... One or two of those, some of those cells become the placenta. Some of those cells become the fetus. Some of them become the tissues that become endothelium or neural tissues or skin cells or whatever. I don't, I don't know enough about that, that development to be more precise. But, you know, you, you, those cells which have different, or in, in of themselves, different efficiencies of mitochondria, even in the strongest egg cells, um, have variation. And, you know, if you watch people age, some people age uh, because, you know, because they, they just lose muscle. Other people age because the, their skin gets really old at a young age. Other people age, you know, their, their brain decays first. And even without disease, even in not the modern world, but in times gone, uh, gone by when people were aging, there were different reasons that people eventually uh, succumbed to old age it wasn't everyone's not the same and I think a large part of that is which tissues end up with the very strongest mitochondria and I think as we look at toxins such as seed oils which affect mitochondria it, it really is key to understanding the question why if the whole world's eating seed oils why we don't have the same diseases you know the answer is because they're weakening our mitochondria but my mitochondria are weakest in particular tissues and your mitochondria are weakest in already in other tissues and so when you start poisoning them the effect of that poison on our bodies is going to vary it's going to be unique to to all of us yeah and that's and what tucker that, was suggesting there is that you've got um 
you've got your genes and you've got your mitochondria and it's the kind of the genes might be the the structure of the machine and the uh the mitochondria is the the amount of power that you're able to give to the machine and um let's talk about um more about the structure of the mitochondria because um you might be forgiven if you've not heard of them before much for thinking that we're making like a really crude analogy that it's like a, a little machine or like a little motor but actually when you see it zoomed in on it really does look exactly like a rotor and a, 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 a sort of several step machine molecular scale battery. Rotor. yeah exactly it literally turns and the electron transport chain is this process of um pumping protons out so maybe tucker you could talk about kind of that little chain and the complexes they call them which are like this the stages complex one two three and so on and uh what they what they look like and what they do yeah and and boy i mean it sounds like ken's done a lot more reading in this area than i have but to, to sum it up what amazes me when reading about mitochondria is how little is known about their function. We know it in broad strokes. Um, it's very difficult to analyze a mitochondria outside of its environment, right? So in essence, there are different complexes that serve different functions that help process different, food, different uh, foods. Um, for instance, glucose tends to be processed in complex one. Um, comp the latter complexes are the ones that are basically producing the ATP. Um, so you have... And when you say processed, you mean they're taking, they're stripping an electron from the food, whether it's glucose or uh, fat, um, and sending it down the chain to be... Turned right, right. so you have electrons and protons being moved back and forth across, around the chain, right? And at the end that's used to generate the energy that produces the ATP. That's used as the energy source, right? So, I mean, to really strip this down to the simplest component, if you've ever burned um, hydrogen in a you know, high school chemistry experiment, the waste product that you're getting is, um, is water, right? So basically what your body is doing is converting, is burning, combining, um, hydrogen with water, with oxygen to produce water in a very controlled reaction, right? Obviously, if you do this in your chem lab, you get a nice little explosion. <laughs> That's obviously not good for your body. So it's done in this highly controlled process. Um, now, where we get into, you know, one interesting aspect of um, the mitochondria as a machine is that there's variation in the cells in the body on how the mitochondria are constructed, right? There's a molecule called uh, cardiolipin, which is a key part of the electron transport chain. It holds the chain together. It's a, uh, um, it's a fat, basically, you know, everybody's heard of triglycerides. This is a four fats that are bound together um, they're uniquely designed so that they can hold protons. So the protons moving along the electron transport chain are basically going from um, cardiolipin molecule to cardiolipin molecule. And they are attached to the rotors, right? The rotors are bound into the cristae by being attached to the cardiolipin that make up most of the structure of the cristae. 
And in your brain, for instance, the mitochondria are made up of one series of fats. In your heart, they're made up of a very different series of fats. And that's important because it seems as best as we're able to tell that the composition of fats in the cardiolipin affects the efficiency of the machine but it also affects how much damage the machine can cause to the surrounding cell, right? Different fats have different stability, right? So uh, for instance, a saturated fat is what, you know, soap or a candle is made out of, it's hard, right? A polyunsaturated fat is what a seed oil is made out of, and it's very soft and pliable, but it also, a, a saturated fat is very stable. It's very difficult to make it oxidize. Um, all fats will oxidize given enough energy. I mean, that's how you burn a candle. But a polyunsaturated fat is very, very susceptible to oxidation. It can be caused by time. It can be caused by light. I, even blue light is enough to cause a polyunsaturated fat to oxidize. Um, the, as Ken said, the mitochondria is an incredibly um, efficient machine, but it's not perfectly efficient. It does occasionally throw off errors, which are what they call um, reactive oxygen species, which can go and uh, oxidize the fats in the mitochondria. That causes damage to the cardiolipin. Um, in addition, um, polyunsaturated fats can be oxidized by iron, right? So it just so happens that the molecule, the cytochrome C molecule, in the mitochondria is bound to a um, cardiolipin, to several cardiolipins in most cases. And the iron that's contained in the cytochrome C can actually oxidize the cardiolipin that it's attached to. This becomes a self-sustaining process, right? If you do it in a test tube and you mix cytochrome C with cardiolipin, the cytochrome C, the iron in the cytochrome C will oxidize all the cardiolipin until none of it exists, right? So it's a self-sustaining catastrophic process. Now in the mitochondria, we don't see that happen because there are all sorts of elements, you know, as a programmer, it's basically error handling code, right? Okay, we've got a, whoops, we've got a, a rogue um, superoxide coming out of the electron transport chain. Well, you have antioxidants that are designed to capture those and prevent damage, right? Um, if they don't work successfully, they can cause um, cardiolipin oxidation. And if it gets too out of control, then you have more severe error handling code that is designed to gracefully shut down the motor, right? It starts with shutting down the mitochondria. And if there are too many mitochondria that are damaged, then you get into cell, programmed cell death, basically cell suicide. The body recognizes, the cell itself recognizes that the mitochondria are too damaged to continue and it commits suicide, right? It sends out a signal to the body saying, I'm done, I'm out of the game, come clean me up and discard, right? The way I tend uh, to think about all this is, I think of the mitochondrion as a factory where you have some kind of dynamo and conveyor belt series of mechanical arms and so on. And if the whole machinery is working correctly, then everything's fine. But if you use, uh, I don't know, um, black market ethanol instead of the proper fuel, then things are gonna start popping and exploding. 
And then you probably have well, the health. Think of it as a nuclear reactor. Yeah, right. nuclear reactor is a good way because it's... Um, if the mitochondria gets out of control, you have a meltdown, right? Yeah, absolutely. And so maybe if it's, a, if it's a fire in a waste paper basket in a nuclear plant, then you'll just get one of... You'll just get the health and safety um, guy to put it out with a, um, with a, uh, a fire extinguisher, which is the antioxidants. But then if there's, a, if there's a meltdown, like in Chernobyl or something, then you need, you know, the Soviet army to come in and, yeah, exactly. and pretend for, it never happened for the and, next and just, years. Yeah, and just uh, right. well, that's that's a great point because um, I mean an important thing to realize is that the body runs on hydrocarbons, right? Just like a car engine runs on hydrocarbons, and as we all know, the products, some of the products are burning. You know, you have the nice carbon dioxide and water coming out, but just as with a car engine you also have some pretty nasty, partially burned um, chemicals coming out of a car engine, which makes the exhaust quite toxic in its native state, right? The same thing is happening in a mitochondria. It's supposed to be perfectly efficient, but it's, I mean, ideally it would be perfectly efficient, but it's not. And when it starts running dirtily, right? Sort of like a car with the catalytic converter removed, the stuff that it spews out into the cell environment is highly toxic to the rest of the cell and can cause uh, genetic damage, can cause protein damage. Um, I mean, one estimation I saw of the, you know, and we'll, I'm jumping ahead a little bit here, but one estimation I saw of the damage to a cell from malfunctioning mitochondria was that 24% of the proteins in the cell were damaged. Right. So that's a fairly dramatic negative consequence on a cell, obviously. If 24% of its proteins have been damaged, it may not be able to function correctly any longer. So you can see why there are, um, why it's necessary that there's error code, error handling code and error handling systems. Because it, if they get out of control and if they're running poorly, they can cause a great deal of damage to your body. Yeah. So... We've got this picture now of the factory and things that can go wrong in there and these different stages of the, the energy production process and um, how cardiolipin is intimately involved. And so you were talking about um, cardiolipin there and I wanted to talk about basically the different complexes, the different parts of the, the, the process and how it relates to cardiolipin and what you were talking about, reactive oxygen species, which is like the, the, um, the sort of uh, nasty stuff coming off it. Um, so maybe we should start at complex one. So could, could, I, could I just add one layer of, of, of subtlety to this? So, so when the cell's happy, um, as Tucker said, most of the electrons hop, hop, hop along the electron transport chain, complex one, complex two, complex three, complex four, uh, and then so, so forth, and into oxygen. And that's fine. But there's always, even in the perfectly happy, perfectly functioning cell, there's always a little leakage um, where the, uh, the, ele the electrons find the wrong oxygen molecule, not the one it's intended, and that causes reactive oxygen species and... and, and but not damage because it's handled by an antioxidant called glutathione usually. Um, and, but it's extremely important that that happens. 
Um, and and it ha it's really important for two different purposes, which we can we can talk very briefly about. One at complex one, which really directly associates with important aspects of disease, and one at complex three. So I'll try and see these very briefly. And if you want to learn about the one in uh, infinite detail at complex one, then you start hyperlipid proteins. Uh, protons and you read the whole series and then you know everything there is to know about this I think in effect um, so that'll, um, that'll take a couple of months by the way yeah it, it took it took me a couple of it took me a couple of months um, so for the, the second time um, so you, you start off with the electrons in 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 in, com, in complex one and Tucker already said that if you eat glucose you get a lot of electrons being injected there and if you eat fat you actually get a lot injected into uh, complex two the it's not clear cut like that but that's the general picture and so complex one if you if you feed the cell too much just too much food in particular too much fat and some glucose at the same time, then complex one starts producing a lot of extra um, reactive oxygen species. And that then, um, by modifying the, how the cell reacts to the insulin in the body, that then gives the cell an opportunity. If all the mitochondria in a, in a cell vote the same way and produce reactive oxygen species and signal to the cell, hey, hey we are overfed, um, or we're getting sugar and fat at the same time, cut out the sugar. Um, the cell will then uh, modify its response to insulin and um, will change the amount of energy that it's, that, it's, that it's absorbing in through the cell membrane into the cell as food. And that's a really nice regulating process. And I won't say it just now, but we'll come back, I think, in a few minutes to explain why if you have a lot of seed oils in your diet, the switch happens at the wrong place. The switch between switching off and taking in energy happens at the wrong place. But I'll park that idea for a minute because it's very oh, important. That's a super crucial point. Yeah, it's a, but, but I think it's also the thing that took me a long time to understand when thinking this through, maybe because of oversimplification, is that I talked about a mitochondria in a cell but that's not, that's not a good way to put it. You've got to say that cell is a brain cell or it's a cardiac muscle cell or it's an adipose tissue cell because it really matters because the effect of the cell making its decision happens in different ways for all those different cells. Your body only has one level of insulin, right? Your pancreas, if you eat some food, your pancreas pumps out some insulin. If you eat a lot of sugar, your pancreas pumps out a ton of insulin. And that insulin travels around your body to every cell, and the cells have to then make the choice of whether they take the message from that insulin or they ignore it, okay? And that goes from the alpha cells in your pancreas to, to neurons. And they all use this mitochondrial switch of the process that's happening at complex one to decide whether they should accept stimulation from insulin or resist stimulation from insulin. And anyone who's been reading about the diseases of the modern world will have come across the phrase insulin resistance. And a very unfortunate thing about the way that diet and our cells work together is that the body only has one level of insulin and cells might vote, some cells might vote to be insulin resistant with a given amount of blood sugar, but your adipose cells might not vote to be insulin resistant. 
Um, and so you can get a kind of disagreement in your body about how to handle that situation. And so it's not, it's not just that every cell in your body is doing this synchronized switch when there's a certain amount of sugar and a certain amount of fat, the cells suddenly become insulin resistant or, or otherwise. Um, but all the cells make the decision themselves. And to get back to the point that I, that I parked, it turns out that different types of fat affect how that switch happens. So if you eat saturated fat, that switch will switch rather promptly when you eat saturated fat. If you eat um, um, polyunsaturated fat, that behaves much more just like extra glucose does. And so your body's less good at making that, or especially your adipose cells are less good at making that distinction. So if you eat lots of polyunsaturated fat, your muscles won't take it in. They'll try to say, oh no, I don't, I don't want that. I'm being fed with the, the rest of the donut, you know, the sugar that was in the donut, the starch that was in the donut, and I'm not going to take the fat. Um, but you're on the sugar at the same time, but your, your adipose tissue will be mopping up everything and you're, you'll be getting fatter. And um, eventually uh, that leads, that's, that's, that's the quick way to, uh, to type 2 diabetes and, and, and uh, a lifetime of ill health. Yeah, this is something so, that comes out a lot now. Um, people talk about, um, I think, in the general consciousness, people relate excessive sugar and carbohydrates to diabetes. And that seems fair, but what's counterintuitive is the idea that eating polyunsaturated fat from so-called healthy vegetable oils can lead to insulin resistance. What's that got to do with insulin? Yeah, let me get into that. So there are several populations in the world who eat very, very high carbohydrate diets, 80 plus 90% carbohydrates. The Japanese? Have, beg your pardon? The Japanese? The Japanese are one. There's another um, population in the uh, Pacific Islands that they eat mostly uh, yams and they get their protein from pigs that they farm and they eat about 90% um, of their the calories come from carbohydrates. They have no insulin resistance. They have none of the chronic diseases. Um, looking at the Japanese, they were, you know, prior to World War II, um, the main diseases that the Japanese suffered was malnutrition and therefore stunting, right? Small stature because carbohydrates are really our nutrient poor energy sources. Um, so I don't think using the same logic that we did at the beginning of this discussion, I don't think it's really fair to say that they're a source of diabetes because you can have an entire population living on nothing but glucose and sufficient nutrients to make the rest of the machine work and they will never see diabetes or insulin resistance or, you know, any of the other diseases that we associate with it. Um, and I can't, can I just, can I just stop for a second? Yeah. Cause a lot of people who will probably listen to this will likely be in, um, deep into the low carb community. Some of them won't as, as, as am I exactly as, as, as am I. Each so of us. why, right. So why, why do I say that? And yet, um, my hashtag on Twitter that I use to kind of promote this view is, low carb, low six, right? Low carb, low omega six, or it's hashtag LCL six. Um, and I know Ken's, Ken's used that a few times also. <laughs> yeah, kind of did. Right. Yeah. Um, so I found a wonderful paper that was 
done in 1996 um, looking at um, how they started off by saying, um, by looking at the effect that polyunsaturated fats would have on a process called apoptosis, right? Apoptosis, when I mentioned before, um, program suicide, cells saying, okay, I'm too damaged to function anymore. I'm going to have to give it up and the body clears, clears the cell out. That process is known as apoptosis. Um, so they came up with this hypothesis that, um, or I guess there was a hypothesis saying that polyunsaturated fats would lower the rates of apoptosis in the cells. So they said, okay, well, let's test that. So they took um, some mice and they divided them into four groups. One group got the control high carb diet, uh, which is what high carb, low fat diet, which is what mice typically get in a lab. Um, the next group got um, a slightly lower carb diet with polyunsaturated fats, right? Um, then they further subdivided those two groups. But let's look first at what happened when they added polyunsaturates to the high carb diet. The mice got the mouse, they got obese and they got the mouse version of diabetes, right? Their insulin levels went up, their leptin levels went up, which basically meant that their energy regulation system was thrown out of whack, right? It was no longer working correctly. Um, and now what's different in mice from humans is that mouse diabetes doesn't result in hyperglycemia, which is excess blood glucose, right? So the second phase of the experiment, they took one of the half of the group on the control diet and half of the group on the higher polyunsaturated fat diet, and they gave them mouse diabetes, basically. They gave them a toxin, uh, streptozotocin, if I'm getting that correctly, which um, kills the beta cells in the pancreas, reduces the amount of insulin produced in the mouse, and therefore causes hyperglycemia, right? So fascinatingly, the um, mice in the carbohydrate plus polyunsaturate wing got thinner, right? Um, in some respects, they appeared to be healthier, but when you go, went and look at them on the mitochondrial level, what you saw was fascinating and really gets to the point of our discussion here, right? The polyunsaturate plus hyperglycemia caused catastrophic failure of their mitochondria. Um, the cardiolipin count in the mitochondria went way down probably by being oxidized, although unfortunately they didn't look at exactly what was happening on that part of the process. The size of the mitochondria collapsed. The production of energy that the mitochondria were capable of went down. The amount of glucose and fats that they can burn were altered. And what this resulted, you know, amusingly, the original uh, question that they were looking at was, do polyunsaturates reduce apoptosis? And the answer is indeed, yes, they do, okay? But apoptosis isn't the worst thing that can happen to a cell. If you go, apoptosis is a controlled orderly death, right? There's also a process called necrosis. Necrosis is basically where 
things go wrong inside the cell so fast that it can't send out the appropriate signals and it just dies and it breaks up and it starts spewing these, you know, we discussed the toxic uh, products that mitochondria can generate. In necrosis, the cell is spewing these toxic products into the, into the body, right? This is pretty much the worst case. They looked specifically at the heart and a low carb, uh, or rather a high carb polyunsaturated diet with hyperglycemia caused heart failure, right? Sections of the heart were dying off. The capability of the heart to properly burn fuel went way down, right? Now this is relevant to our discussion about human health because we're seeing an epidemic of heart failure in the world right now. And medicine is, you know, this study came out in 1996. Medicine is apparently nobody read it except for me and Ken because doctors are still completely clueless about what causes heart failure, despite the fact that they're now doing experiments with chemicals that block the damage of uh, cardiolipin and which are able to help heal heart failure in dogs anyway, they're coming along. So, you know, we've got, there's some pretty good evidence for why it's not just um, sugars in the diet, you know, glucose, that's the cause of this. Um, and it's not just the fact that in Japan, you know, nice big ex human experiment after World War II, American army went in there and tried to improve the Japanese diet by convincing them that they should be eating seed oils instead of lard, because that's what we were telling the American population. And they saw heart disease, diabetes, and the Western cancers, as they call them in Japan, skyrocket over the next few generations. Particularly uh, in Okinawa, right? Okinawa specifically, but across all of Japan. I mean, the Okinawans really got it. Uh, they got it with both barrels, as it were, because not only were we um, trying to convince them to change their diet, but we were also building lots of fast food restaurants. And if there's only one thing you can say about American fast food, it's that it's universally popular. Hmm. Yeah. So yeah, you covered a lot of ground there, but I, I, I think um, you actually, you know, hit a lot of the really, really important points. And, and so I'm, I'm now completely convinced that the it's the lipids, the polyunsaturated fats that through several processes, and we won't talk about them all, but through several processes cause damage to the mitochondria. And then, um, and I think actually, you know, the, the, um, the question about, so, so the, the decision about uh, insulin resistance starts going wrong just with mitochondria, just with the lipids in the diet being the wrong choice of polyunsaturated lipids in the diet. Um, and they did, at that level, it doesn't even need to be incorporated into the um, mitochondrial structure. You get the damage just from directly from the food. But then I think all the, the other consequences of bleeding towards necrosis is happening because, particularly because cardiolipin molecules that are meant to have a mixture of saturated, monounsaturated, and polyunsaturated um, chains, these four chains in the molecule are meant to be some complicated mixture. And as I referred to this wonderful experiment by uh, Kibish, um, published by Kibish et al. in, in um, 2008, where they, they, they actually look at the hundreds. Ken, Ken, Ken referred to this in the discussions we were having prior to this podcast. Right. Yeah. Into it yet on this discussion, but this ah, is the point. Right. Yeah. So, so there's, there's the, uh, there, there was, um, uh, 
um, thank you for reminding me, the, um, the, the paper published in 2008 where uh, about an amazing uh, set of uh, experiments um, that a group had uh, dissected uh, mice, black sex mice uh, brains and extracted the cardiolipin molecules from mitochondria in some of the cells in their, in their brains and analyzed them and found that in a healthy brain, there was about 100 different types of cardiolipin with different chains uh, of these four chains, some saturated, some polyunsaturated, some monounsaturated. And, you know, I think um, even if we can't explain what the function of all those 100 chemicals is, they jolly well have one. It's not by accident that the body makes 100 different chemicals and incorporates it in the brain. Um, Whereas if you look at a heart, you just find basically all the cardiolipin in a, in a human heart today is full of uh, linoleic acid molecules, so seed, directly from seed oils uh, connected onto the cardiolipin. Yeah, linoleic acid being the primary omega-6 polyunsaturate in seed oils. That's Yeah, enemy number one, in other words. Um, and and uh, so I think... Um, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to know how deep to go into this, but to cut it really short, that the structure of the cardiolipin that Tucker, you already explained, controls the whole shape and function of these complexes in the electron transport chain in the mitochondria. You know, they, it's a very dynamic situation. There's been recent publications by, uh, by several groups uh, showing that subtle changes in uh, the, the context there can make the cardiolipin change shape a little bit and move the complexes around and put them in the right place to do the job best for the, the particular function that's required of them. And I think in particular, um, connecting back to your point about, um, uh, well, autophagy being the, the harmless way to refresh mitochondria, which happens if you fast, it happens every night uh, in your body, the weakest mitochondria die, new ones replaced, that's fine. And then apoptosis where um, you know, if a cell has no good mitochondria left or is so stressed that it can't get enough energy from its mitochondria, then it just says, right, we're going to shut down here, dismantle all the nasty chemicals inside and then rupture and nothing bad happens in the surrounding tissue to necrosis, which, as you said, is just up, stop, dead, burst, poison everywhere, inflammation in the local tissue, disaster for the, for the body. Um, and really what distinguishes the, the, those processes is actually another one of these mitochondrial switches. There's the one that we mentioned at complex one, and there's one at complex three. And I think the general understanding of this is that the function that it has is to measure whether the energy flow through the mitochondrion is matching the amount of oxygen that's available. So you want to burn, it's like a hydrogen-oxygen experiment. You want exactly the right ratio of hydrogen and well, oxygen. It's, it's a carburetor. It's, it's exactly. And so... my uh, so, it's so the air-fuel mixture, just like a yeah. carburetor. Yeah. So complex three does that. But it also acts as a point um, where the, if the cell is under stress, all the messages from inside and outside the mitochondrion converge on complex three. So if, you're, if a cell is trying to make more protein to repair some damage and it can't because it doesn't have enough energy, then it starts producing a huge amount of uh, free calcium ions, which all end up in the, well, many end up in the mitochondrion. They end up near complex three and elsewhere. 
and they make it even more susceptible to producing reactive oxygen species. And that's the place where, in particular, um, cardiolipin that contains a lot of linoleic acid, fatty acid chains, fits together with the, uh, the cytochrome C iron containing molecule that Tucker mentioned, fits together with complex three, which is pumping electrons and making reactive oxygen species right in the neighborhood of weak points in these, car in these linoleic acid chains, double bonds that can easily be broken and cause a nasty chain reaction. And if that chain reaction happens in a limited way, the, cardio the uh, cytochrome C gets released, leaves the mitochondrion, and that leads to apoptosis. That's a programmed cell death. That's the main, you know, every biologist will know to look for cytochrome C and apoptosis connected together. Right, and a key, a key point there is the first step in that process is ca cardiolipin getting oxidized. Exactly, yeah. Right, so the cardiolipin gets oxidized, it proceeds to the outside of the mitochondria, and it causes the mitochondria to open up a pore, pore. which allows the cytochrome C to exit the mitochondria, free yeah. cytochrome C, which is only supposed to be in the mitochondria out in the cell, is the signal that the mitochondria is damaged and needs to be disposed of yeah. or that the cell is too damaged and needs to be autophagy. Yeah, and if, if there are many things that control the sensitivity of the cardiolipin molecule to doing that. So if there's a lot of calcium present, calcium bonds to one end of the molecule, changes its shape by a tiny, tiny amount, and that makes it more susceptible to the oxidation. It moves it closer to the iron a little bit. Uh, one of the chains of the cardiolipin molecule goes right inside complex three and right past the iron. It's sitting there waiting to be oxidized. And it makes a huge difference if that's a linoleic acid chain or if it's, a, for example, an omega-3 chain or a saturated fatty acid chain. You get very different reaction. And um, Yeah, I've, that, I've seen one paper that stated that um, in order for cardiolipin to get oxidized, it's virtually a requirement that you have to have two adjacent linoleic acid chains. That, right? That's exactly right. So, Which, so, so the, the, this kibish brain uh, picture, there's almost no uh, linoleic acid in the, in the cardiolipin in the, in the brain. And that's very interesting because things only get into the brain if they cross the blood-brain barrier. And so just because you eat something doesn't mean that it automatically gets into your brain. And I think it's quite remarkable that if you look for linoleic acid in, in the species of the, the cardiolipin there. Hello? Hello? I think I Ken froze. You, yeah, it looks like Ken's yeah, froze. I, I can hear you, Ali. I think we've lost Ken for a minute. Oh, uh, there's no, I think. Oh, Ken. Uh, Ken, you Hello? dropped out. Yeah, we lost you probably 20 seconds ago or so. Okay, so I think that... Um, you were going it, on about, you were describing uh, cardiolipin structure in the brain and the... Uh, the blood brain barrier. Yeah, mm -hmm. so there's very little in the way of, of uh, linoleic acid chains, I mean, in, in the brain, compared to if you read about cardiolipin in, in mammal hearts, whether it's pigs or humans or, or rats or whatever, then the general um, literature seems to imply that it's all linoleic acid. And I, I don't think that's right. And there's a couple well, of reasons yeah, why, that's, why that's, it's not, that's why it's not right. First that's, is that's a great, a great example of what you were talking about. Yeah. You always read that, oh, linoleic acid is the primary, you know, some papers will even go so far as to say it's always uh, yeah. comprised of four yeah. linoleic acids. That's clearly not true. And if you yeah. read enough papers, 
you know, you can, you know, they'll go through and describe the different species of, they call them, of linoleic acid yeah. with comprised of different fats. Now, a key point in this discussion is the studies that have looked at manipulating the composition of cardiolipin through diet, right? Yeah. Which really gets, which sort of ties the two threads of our conversation together, exactly. right? Do you Absolutely. want to go on? Let me just let, before before you before you talk about that, I just want to underline what we've been speaking about in that section because there was quite a lot there, and I want to start just uh, recapping on the points that you made, Tucker, around the studies that have been done on mice and dogs because a lot of the time people want to see you know human studies before they're convinced, but there's certain phenomena that. Um, humans and uh, mice and um, dogs share in their physiology because they go back far enough. Like Ken was saying, the mitochondrial structure has not really changed since we were yeast cells. So if you're looking at something that's happening in the mitochondria of a mouse, then it's happening in the mitochondria of the humans as well. And the odds are very high. The odds are very high indeed. So the systemic observations might be different, but the uh, mitochondrial level effects are there so that you know over the the last billion years when we've gone from um you know the you know yeasts you know, well i don't think well i'm not sure if we're ever yeast cells but over, you know all through the, our evolution into into you know um nematodes and uh you know chimp-like creatures and then what we are today um the mitochondria were just producing energy and we've only introduced this glut of um, something new to put into the cardiolipin molecules that are a key part of the whole process in the last hundred years or so. There's no, you know, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to see that that's not a, a recipe for good health. Yeah. And so you were just about to talk about the food side of things and how that feeds into this problem, right? Yeah. Okay. So very briefly, I think, you know, you can see that, that, um, that um, there's a couple of good pieces of evidence that uh, cardiolipin shouldn't be completely full of, of, uh, of linoleic acid. And I think it's very hard to say, you know, exactly where the line should be drawn. So I'm not going to try and do that. I'm just going to I, present. A although I will, I'll, I will make the point that linoleic acid seems to be um, a, you know, despite all the problems we're going to describe here, it's in all real food. And yep. it does seem to be a preferred component of cardiolipin in the body. The yep. goal shouldn't be to eliminate it entirely. We don't need you, a purge. You, you can't. It's you impossible can't. to eliminate yeah. it. And and even, I think, I, if I remember right, even if you did eliminate it, it could be back converted from arachidonic acid anyway, so your body would be able to find it there. So yes. you, I, I think you cannot have, unless you're a lab rat in an experiment 100 odd years ago, I think you basically can't get linoleic acid deficiency. You, you would have to be in a, in a lab experiment to achieve that. But, sure. the, but the, the point being, I think posit, looking for positive uh, um, um, evidence rather than just just negative things there's been quite a few experiments and tucker was was just hinting at one on um feeding different animals and even humans uh, uh omega-3 fatty acids when the animals or the humans were in heart failure and the there's a very strong evidence that the cardiolipin in the heart muscle uh, absorbs some of the the uh 
hexanoic acid, the omega-3 fish oil type, um, fatty DHA acid, to its DHA to its friends, and EPA as well. And that, that was measured, at least in animals, I can't remember if in, in, if in biopsies in humans, but it was measured. Um, and it corresponded to recovery, partial recovery from heart failure. So it, it definitely caused uh, some good in that circumstance. And to me, that, that means the heart mitochondria were just crying out for some of that stuff because as soon as it was provided they absorbed it and the situation improved um, and the other one is as already mentioned that in the brain of the of the black six mice um, that were fed um, a, a, a linoleic acid containing diet their mitochondria didn't uh, contain huge amounts of linoleic acid so I think they were being protected from it and I think the final piece of evidence is something that affects and that's people that's but Ken, that's a key point that I think we need to make is okay. that if the brain has two crucial characteristics for this conversation, it has an extremely high energy demand yeah. and it has very poor antioxidant protection Good. subsystems, right? So if you have a fat that is linoleic acid seems to be quite efficient in cardiolipin at helping mitochondria to produce energy mm -hmm. which is why the heart seems to prefer it as a fat yep. right the heart also is very selective about the fuels that it prefers to use it prefers not to use glucose it prefers to use fats and lactate right which seem to be cleaner burning fuels in the mitochondria producing less mm -hmm. damage um, in the experiment i was talking about before they were only able to induce necrosis in the, in the heart when they induced hyperglycemia. So they were basically forcing the heart to burn glucose. Yeah. Um, the brain, since it has poor, I mean, my hypothesis is that since the brain is very, very susceptible to oxidative damage and has poor antioxidant systems, it is selecting out linoleic acid because yeah. linoleic acid tends to be very damaging when it's in these when it's in the mitochondria mm -hmm. no I, I agree 100 percent with that and the the final piece of evidence i was going to bring was conjugated linoleic acids you know so so when when uh, so when uh, cows eat uh, grass and grains and whatever cows eat they 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 of course just pass them to the bacteria and the rumen and the bacteria and and other things in the rumen fungi and yeasts and so forth run this big chemical factory and it does a lot of very very complicated chemistry and then the the, the cow lives on the the cattle live on the fat that those things produce largely and interestingly um when you look at dairy when you look at milk produced by cows it's very low in linoleic acid no matter what's been in the food it's pretty low in linoleic acid but a lot of that linoleic acid has been changed into a, a, a different chemical with a similar name called conjugated linoleic acid which doesn't behave in anything like the same way in 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 cardiolipin um, and when you when you expose people to dairy or lin or conjugated linoleic acid, it's now um, you know under study as an anti-cancer agent, uh, um, uh, um, something that just generally uh, reverses metabolic disease. Um, and again, that's through uh, incorporation into into cardiolipin, and usually in place of linoleic acid. So that's, so that's I've three also pieces seen of evidence. I've also seen some papers speculating that it seems to have those effects because it blocks uptake of linoleic acid. Sure, yeah. 
but it, it ends up in the cardiolipin as well. So it, it you win you win twice, I guess. So I think you know I think that's that certainly um, you know gives you the gives this overall picture of the mitochondrion struggling to produce energy, um, getting the food that we give it, adapting to the situation as best it can it can. But but because of just being bombarded with huge amounts of linoleic acid, and then on top of that bursts maybe every few hours of high sugar, the cells just can't, just can't do it. And so they either die quickly and you get horrible inflammation and that can be long lasting inflammation, or they um, go through uh, mutations and uh, the mitochondria become less efficient and the cells actually lose the ability. There are other states apart from apoptosis and necrosis that you can get into. And one of those is called cancer. You know, a cell can, shut down enough that it can't produce energy by the normal means, but not shut down enough to kill itself. And that's a really unstable situation where that cell can then leak its, its influence onto neighboring cells. It can reproduce without, without limit. And then you've got, you've got a tumor. Right. And there's a fascinating paper by Thomas Seafried uh, looking at brain cancer and finding that every single cancer cell had damaged cardiolipin without exception. That's and another paper that you've mentioned before, Tucker, where uh, they were you, they were uh, testing cancer in mice, and they were actually we found they were unable to induce cancer in the mice unless they fed them um, above a certain threshold of linoleic acid. Right? There are actually two different papers showing that. One is in a breast cancer model. The other is in a skin cancer model that in a zero omega-6 diet, they're unable to cause cancer to tumors to grow and metastasize. So that's, I mean, the phrase, the breast cancer paper, paper said that uh, linoleic acid is required for the experimental induction of cancer. Mm -hmm. So you've got this picture where, as Ken said, the mitochondria are fighting to get the you know the best source of energy they, they the best source of uh, fuel they can but there's an overwhelm and depending on how that's expressed in the particular area of the body or the particular system that you're talking about you can get type 2 diabetes cancer cardiovascular disease heart attack um where does alzheimer's come in alzheimer's you know mitochondrial dysfunction is a standard feature of all the neurodegenerative diseases, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's, Huntington's, um, oxidative stress is under intensive study. Um, some of the uh, linoleic acid breaks down in, you know, it's, linoleic acid breaks down into a variety of different chemicals um, when it goes bad. Um, one of them is, uh, for hydroxy 2 nonanol, um, which is usually known by the acronym HNE. Um, HNE is a fascinating little chemical as it's a basic regulatory element of the mitochondria. So when the mitochondria detects HNE, it basically goes into a, it, it effectively lifts the throttle, right? So it's recognizing that there's damage going on internally and that it's got a reduce its enemies or its energy supply or its energy production sorry um hne breaks down hne uh can cause 
uh, cardiolipin to oxidize. Um, in the experiment that I was describing before, where cytochrome C and cardiolipin are co-incubated, linoleic acid breaking down into HNA, the HNA then goes and oxidizes more cardiolipin by breaking down that uh, linoleic acid. That's the process that's causing the self-sustaining death sites, death spiral. Um, in Alzheimer's, they found high concentrations of HNA in the affected tissues. Um, when I described earlier the um, damage of 24% of the proteins, uh, it was by HNA going and modifying proteins. HNA also can go modify DNA in the nucleus of the cell. So it's, you know, <laughs> it's a wonderful Wikipedia page to read because they describe it as highly toxic and, you know, go on to list all the um, diseases that it's under investigation as, as a, as causal. Uh, and it's everything we're discussing here. Yeah. And it only comes from linoleic acid and arachidonic acid. There's no other way to produce it. And the equivalent yes. omega-3 chemical is pretty non-toxic. There's a yes. little, a little, a little, um, a and, a little... and, that may ex and that may explain why the brain prefers to use um, omega-3 fats to omega-6 fats. Um, I found another paper looking, or a couple of other papers looking at uh, Alzheimer's. And what they found was that as Alzheimer's, people who, were, who got Alzheimer's had progressively higher levels of arachidonic acid in the brain. But then people who have Alzheimer's have progressively lower levels of arachidonic acid in the brain. And I would guess that that's because this death spiral is occurring and you are seeing arachidonic acid breaking down into the toxins that are causing the actual damage. So Tucker, I'm not sure if you saw a tweet, a retweet I did from uh, Mitochondria News a couple of days ago. I thought there's might... such a thing, Mitochondria. Yeah, I, I follow it. <laughs> I think it's a bot, but it, it's really good. If you can understand the title of the papers, and they're sometimes worth reading, some of them are just hilarious. Um, there was one today about epigenetic effects in frozen rooster sperm, for example. <laughs> Anyhow, boy, that's the, a page turner. <laughs> the, pa the paper that came to mind is Genepin attenuates mitochondrial dependent apoptosis, endoplasmic reticulum stress, and inflammation via the PI3K slash AKT pathway in acute lung injury. And I thought, right, that's all fine, but what on earth is Genepin? So I looked it up. Would you like to guess what Sigma Aldrich said about the Genepin they sell? No, I couldn't yeah. even guess. Yeah. So Genepin oh, is a natural cross-linking agent extracted from the uh, gardenia fruit. It prevents lipid peroxidation. Ta-da. Yep. You know, yep. exactly what you would have said that that chemical would do. Any exactly. chemical that does anything useful in, um, in Alzheimer's, this is in the context of Alzheimer's, anything that does anything useful in that is going to Reduce lipid peroxidation. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, which gets us into, um, I've kind of got to start, stop here in 15 minutes, but that's a perfect segue in um, to something I think we should talk about, um, which is drugs that are designed to affect this pathway. Um, now, one of the sad facts of learning any field of science is that you may have these genius, what you think are genius insights. After reading enough papers, you know the the little the little 
particles collide in your brain and you say, wait, well, if this is the case, then blah, blah, blah. And then you invariably discover that some guy figured it out 40 years ago and has been making a career out of it. Um, so when I started getting interested in cardiolipin, um, I kept pulling at the threads until I eventually found a thread that led to Moscow and this scientist uh, named uh, Skulichev. Skulichev, yep. is that his name? Yep. I've got it right, okay. Um, so he, one of the really neat papers that I found uh, looking at cardiolipin took a, a chemical called TPP, and I can't remember what that stands for, but it's basically a charged particle that you can attach to other things, and the uh, charge in the cell will draw those, the attached particle with the TPP into the mitochondria, right? So what they did in this one experiment is they took TPP and they attached it to oleic acid, which is the fat in olive oil, which was a monounsaturated fat, and they sent it into the mitochondria and they discovered that it was incorporated up into cardiolipin and the cardiolipin became much less susceptible to oxidation. Um, Skulichev took TPP and attached it to, um, uh, boy, it's a, it's the plant equivalent to CoQ10, a quinone. Um, there was already a chemical called uh, MitoQ, right? Which is mitochondrial uh, CoQ10 effectively. Um, that they found had some effects on the mitochondria, but they never quite figured out what they were. Skuldachev appears to have been a much better scientist. And he figured out that what this chemical is actually doing is going in and protecting the cardiolipin from oxidation, regardless of what's in the diet. Now, He's then done a variety of animal uh, experiments, which are rather astonishing, and it's in phase two human trials, right? Um, now, the fact that there are drugs that are in production, MitoQ is over the counter down in New Zealand, um, and has been tested you know, for a variety of different conditions, is a pretty good indication that this pathway that we've been talking about all this time, that there's something real to it. Um, Skulichev specifically mentions that um, HNE production, when given his drug, is much lower in these in these mitochondria. Um, currently, that's that drug is under testing for dry eye, which appears to be another condition that's associated with oxidative stress in the eyes. Um, so the fact there's so there's MitoQ, there's uh, SKQ1, which is Skulichev's drug. And there's another drug, SS31, which was used to, if I'm remembering correctly, it was either SS31, which was developed by a scientist in New York, or SKQ1 that was used to reverse heart failure in dogs. Um, so they, without oddly and frustratingly, because if you read through all of these papers, none of these papers will ever describe this pathway that we're discussing here, yet, the fact that they all seem to be circling around the details of it, right? I've never seen that 1996 paper on how to induce heart failure referenced, right? If you read that paper, you would think, wow, something that protects cardiolipin, that, that'd be a no-brainer. <laughs> and sure enough, it's effective. I, I think there's one work by Skulichev that kind of 
gets there. I think didn't he write a Skolichev book? Skolichev understood exactly. What yeah, he and he he yes. wrote a book in, in in aging, which is really quite fascinating. I think you can find that in PDF places. So, so yeah, that, to yeah. The, to, to Ken's point, way back at the beginning of this conversation, Skolichev was an aging scientist, right? He was trying to address cellular senescence, which is basically, you know, we discussed apoptosis and necrosis. There's a third option, which is the cell goes senescent, which is it doesn't get broken down. It just kind of goes into a form of cellular stasis where it's still alive, but it's semi-functional. Um, and that was what Skulichev was trying to address with his cardiolipin protect protecting drug. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's really interesting that those those drugs are coming through now. And um, it, it, I suppose it leads, if we're, if we're wrapping up in 10 or 15 minutes, I guess it's enough time to properly summarize what, knowing all that you know, you would do yourself. And I guess like it's been complicated talking about it. So we're talking about a bombardment in our mitochondrial cardiolipin with linoleic acid, which you find in seed oils predominantly, but you also find it in things like nuts a lot. You've got high levels of linoleic acid. Um, and you find it in very low levels in all whole foods, but the lowest would be um, things like coconut oil has very low levels, uh, ruminant meat fat. Yeah, ruminant meat, yep. Um, and higher in monogastric meat, like pigs and chickens. And, and people. And yeah, who've eaten. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that, that's a really good point because, you know, it, if someone has been eating a standard, you know, Western diet for a while, um, I think we can expect that their their adipose tissue is something in the region of twenty percent, maybe probably more of linoleic acid, right? And so even yeah, if you don't Stephen eat another, yeah, did a paper tracking that across exactly. since World yeah. War II, and he showed linoleic acid levels climbed steadily. Yeah, so you know, steadily and roughly in parallel with the the poor health of the of the uh, yeah. It's been in parallel with consumption and in parallel with with health effects. Um, he didn't show that, but that, that well, was in, inversely uh, with health effects. <laughs> yeah, if you like, yeah, in, yes, with inverse health. Um, but the point being that even if you don't eat any more uh, this year, then you've still got a year's supply <laughs> or more of the stuff in your body. And this is something where I'm possibly very at slight disagreement with the average uh, person I communicate in in, in in Twitter that I'm. I'm, I've got really paranoid about linoleic acid and I, I, I'm happy to eat, you know, beef or any ruminant meat. And I'm very cautious about pork because especially low cost uh, pork in the EU fed standard pork feed has got quite a lot of linoleic acid in it. They use corn and soy oil and wonderful things like that. And, and so I, I'm quite uh, wary of eating much of that at all and, and certainly nothing you know that, that overtly uh, contains linoleic acid as an ingredient which includes anything baked or pretty much all processed food and um one yeah. one of the one of the questions one of the things you can do though to to sort of modify that is we didn't really talk about it but as mitochondria are adapting um and when you don't eat there there's no there's very little sugar around glucose around and they activate um, a series of, of chemical pathways that prepare the cell to 
work well with fat. So you do it every night, if, unless you're really diabetic, you do it every night. Um, and fast every night and then breakfast in the morning if you're unlike me and, uh, and, and eat breakfast. And um, the, the, um, the point being, one of the things you do in that is, is you uh, upregulate uh, other things in the cells called peroxisomes. And peroxisomes are <laughs> rather mysterious things, but the one thing that's known about them is they burn up fats like linoleic acid very effectively outside the mitochondria and where they can't cause much damage. And so um, if you fast... They're, they're pre-processing for the mitochondria. They, they are. It has to be processed in the mitochondria. Yeah, and they do it in an energy inefficient way. So they only really do it at times when there's plenty of fat around and you're not, you know, not completely starving, but they do it when you're fasting. And when, you, when, you're, when your cells are working on fat, and that will stop to some extent, um, even if you eat some linoleic acid in that circumstance, say I eat some pork, fatty pork, then if I've been fasting, then a lot of that linoleic acid will just be burned up in, in the um, peroxisomes. And they actually produce heat as much as, as, as other useful energy. So they, you know, if you eat a lot of fatty stuff, it lets you feel warm for various reasons, one of which is including you're burning it up in the peroxisomes. And they're not efficient like the mitochondria, which don't produce, which don't necessarily produce much heat. And so you can, you can protect yourself um, as well by eating a more, you know, if you imagine how a hunter-gatherer might have lived uh, hunting for most of the calories, but, you know, probably only eating every two or three days and probably running many kilometers to, to get yes. the food. So your first thing you do is you deplete all your glucose and glycogen, and that pushes you into this uh, regime where your mitochondria and your brain's running on ketone bodies, your mitochondria are running on fat, and your uh, peroxisomes are burning up um, all the long chain uh, fatty acids is pre-processing for the, for the mitochondria. And that's a really, really healthy state. So I think the closer one can get to living in that kind of state, um, no matter what your history is, the better uh, for, for your uh, future short and long-term um, oh, health. I agree with that 100%. I especially agree with your observation about eating pigs and poultry. Um, there's a fascinating paper um, looking at feeding soy to salmon, right, which they do in farmed salmon, okay. um, and then looking at the subsequent effects on mice that are fed the salmon. And the mice, you know, you can look at it as a bioaccumulating toxin, linoleic mm -hmm. acid. The mice saw, you know, the salmon had negative effects, and then the mice fed the salmon had negative effects. And I have no reason to think that. The same thing isn't happening in the human food yep. chain with us feeding all these grains to pigs and chickens who are then bioaccumulating uh, omega-6 fats. And we are then, you know, as the top predator in that chain, super accumulating them. And I think that's something that we really want to avoid. Um, one, one other thing I want to make, if you go read um, the Wikipedia page on cardiolipin, uh, which Wikipedia being what it is, gets updated pretty frequently. And I haven't looked at it for a couple of years, but thought I should probably read it before this conversation. Um, mm -hmm. They have a conversation in there about uh, CFS. And now it's really uh -huh. interesting. Yes. And yeah. what's really interesting is that there are a number of conditions 
one of the symptoms of which is anti-cardiolipin antibodies, right? So as we discussed, uh, the mitochondria were bacteria that were taken up by another cell. Cardiolipin is only found in bacteria mem bacterial membranes and in mitochondria, yep. right? Yep. So the body interprets oxidized, only oxidized cardiolipin in the body as indicative of bacterial infection, right? So this is basically an autoimmune process induced, I would argue, by a dietary change where you were causing, since we know cardiolipin only oxidizes when it has uh, a lot of omega-6 fats in it, you are basically causing um, what I would expect is going on in CFS is that you're having rampant cardiolipin oxidation causing rampant mitochondrial breakdown. Uh, there's gotta be a lot of necrosis going on for all this oxidized cardiolipin to be reduced, to be um, released into the serum. And then you've got the body attacking it as thinking arguably correctly that it has this bacterial infection going on. Although unfortunately it's just mitochondria breakdown, right? That's amazing. So. I didn't, I hadn't realized that. And so through that mechanism and all the other ones that we've talked about, which, you know, all have their, your, their uniqueness, even though the root cause seems to be the same. You can say that uh, on the bleak side, if you eat, like most people do with uh, donuts here and some um, French fries there and some, uh, some chips and crisps and all the rest of it and baked goods and, and biscuits, then you're going to be, and you know, even pork and chicken, you're going to be accumulating linoleic acid in, in your, in your cardiolipin and hurtling towards. And, and, and inducing hyperglycemia to cause it to oxidize super fast. Yes. Yes. And, through that mechanism, you're going to hurtle towards type 2 diabetes, potentially cancer, cardiovascular disease, Alzheimer's disease, chronic fatigue syndrome, all these things that we've talked about. Or on the plus side, if you avoid eating it completely and you look to be or fasted for, for <laughs> yes, 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 for if you look to be fasted for some of the week, then you're unlikely to get any of these diseases. Much cancer is a tricky one. Cancer isn't a disease; it's tons of diseases. But yeah, yeah I it's that's that. It, what you just described is the bet that I'm making, and the bet that yeah. I would advise everybody to make. I think, and you know, looking at my health now versus my health when prior to fixing my diet, you know, it's I don't take any drugs, I don't take any pain medication, I you know heal super fast, I don't get sick. It's, you know, I don't burn sun, burn in the sun the way I used to. There's just literally been no downsides, except that I had to take a lot of my clothes to get them tailored after I fixed my diet. <laughs> yeah, what a bummer. Yeah, it was kind of it was kind of annoying, but I'll I'll live with it. Well, it's been super illuminating, and I think you know a story is always a beginning, a muddle, and an end. And I reckon that the 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 tough bit was talking about the the complexes in the mitochondria, but I think we got there with some uh, tortured similes about <laughs> yes. Chernobyl. Um, I think we got there. My them. apologies to the metaphor police. <laughs> um, but I really appreciate you both coming on and sharing what you know about it. It was, well, it was, it was an honor and it was, thank you for having me on with Ken. 
And I'll, really I'll say, I'll say exactly the same. It's, it's, we've kind of corresponded loosely for five years, roughly on and off, uh, starting in Peter's blog, Hyperlipid blog. And, um, I've read your blog, Yelling Stop blog, from beginning to end twice. Um, oh my, my condolences. <laughs> <laughs> well, I like I like barefoot running as well as as well as um, as well as the lipid stuff. So you know, it was very interesting from that point of view. So um, I don't have a blog, so I I I, uh, I can't offer the same um, pleasure. But um, you know, it's it's been absolutely great, and uh, thank you, Ali, for the opportunity. Yes, thank you, Ali. Yeah, you're very welcome. All right. Thanks, guys. See you later. Right. Bye. Thanks for listening, everyone. Please don't forget to jump over to iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts and hit the subscribe button. And please don't forget to leave a five-star rating and review to get the podcast in front of more eyes. This podcast is made possible thanks to paleocanteen.co.uk, which is my company. Paleocanteen.co.uk is the UK's one-stop paleo and low-carb food provider where you can get restaurant-quality meals, grass-fed Scottish beef and lamb, outdoor bread pork and a selection of paleo and low-carb products delivered chilled to your door. That's paleocanteen.co.uk. Use the code CANTEEN15, that's C-A-N-T-E-E-N-1-5 to get 15% off your first order. Thanks, see you next time.